Welcome everybody out to episode 102 of Utah in the Weeds. My name is Tim Pickett and I'm the host here, a podcast about Utah cannabis and cannabis culture and medical cannabis. And today a discussion, another discussion about psychedelics and these psychotropic medications. Ketamine is the topic mostly of our discussion today with Tom Swan of Swan Balanced Health. They have a clinic in Northern Utah and specialize in major depression treatment with ketamine infusion therapy. This discussion goes right along the lines of our discussion with Steve Urquhart in a previous podcast where we talked about psilocybin and the divine assembly with Steve's church and those developing research and studies regarding all of this psychedelic medications that's coming down the pipeline. In fact, additionally, uh, my discussion with um, the president of the Libertas Institute, Connor Boyack, about uh, the psilocybin bill here in Utah that was recently passed, which develops a task force to study the effects of psilocybin and what the program would look like if, in fact, Utah was able to put a program for these psychedelics and, and uh, this type of treatment therapy together. I'm excited to introduce you to Tom Swan. He's, he's a great guy and knows a lot about this therapy, has been doing this for quite a while. Just a, a really interesting new concept of treatment that you go to every couple of weeks or you could go to a retreat and find uh, these experiences and really get in touch with you know what's happening deep inside the brain changing perspectives and associating different like a different perspective to certain events uh, has the potential to be really powerful for people and I've known a lot of people who have had great success with this. Uh, make sure you're subscribed on any podcast player that you have access to, Utah in the Weeds. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube at Discover Marijuana. Uh, we have a lot of videos there for cannabis and cannabis therapy. Uh, keep doing this program with cannabis here in Utah and just excited. It's a beautiful June day here. Welcome. The birds are uh, singing outside. Enjoy this summer and this discussion with Tom Swan. Where did this all start? Because it looks like you went to Westminster. Are you from here, Utah? Yes, I've always lived in Utah, ranging from cities between Farmington is the furthest south and right on the line between Ogden and North Ogden is the furthest north, but always in the little bubble. You, you have, uh, you have slightly gauged ears. You, I don't even think they would let you live in Farmington. <laughs> it's, it's true that it was not well received there. <laughs> and I've always been a little, a little eccentric with my appearance. And so that was one of my first cues. I was young growing up in an LDS family that, uh, kind of free thinking and doing whatever you felt like wasn't wasn't well received made you a bad person according to a lot of the church leaders in the neighborhood where i lived right so um from a young age i like i was raised in an lds family but uh, around 10 years old i was telling my mom i don't think god is real it's i, I don't think these are good people here i don't know why we would take our advice on how to be good people from people who are like this and she would tell me like if you talk bad about God, you're going to hit by lightning. And I it's always just been super logical. And I was like, then why do I not get hit by lightning? <laughs> right. Seems, it's, you know, I just always needed evidence. And that's right. the, the thing about ketamine and other like psychedelics is that the experience was a spiritual experience. And for me, that was evident. I, I went from this like staunch atheist to now I, I feel like a pretty spiritual person. Hmm. How did you get into medicine? Um, uh, frankly, it was just, I didn't really feel when I was younger, like I had any sort of a calling, but I knew I really liked science. I wanted to do something where I could help people. Um, so I was like, well, I'll, maybe I'll go to school. So I started doing pre-med in college and within a couple of years realized like, that's not something you can do on a whim. Like, sure. I, I felt like I could have the capability to do that, but without the drive to do it like that's so much work so i was like well what can i do 
with like all the prereqs I've already done in pre-med. So I applied to nursing school and they were like, yeah, you're, you you got all this prereq coursework done. You got great grades, come on in. So I did that and I just practiced as a nurse for a while. Um, I I worked in a variety of different areas from like long-term care and hospice and physical therapy rehab to, I went to the operating room after that. And I left where, that, but it was, where did you, uh, where did you, where were you in the operating room at Davis hospital? Oh, cool. Yeah. That, that was, that's what I did for six and a half years is GI surgery and trauma. Oh, nice. Right. For the general surgeons in West Valley and the OR nurses there, it you're way too young for that. Right. That's where they go to retire. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> there, there wasn't a whole ton of, like critical nursing skills you needed. And so the fact that I was smart and could move like the wind, I was perfect there. I excelled at it. <laughs> yeah. You did everything prepped and good and move fast. Yep. But uh, that was one of the most fun areas to work. But yeah, it was not going anywhere for my career. Right. Uh, like watching my skills, uh, you know, slowly get lost. Sure. So um, I moved to the you I wanted to something else, but I didn't know what. And I went there to just get, you know, all the, all the skills that I could. And while I was there and watching people pretty much go through this like worst case scenario of almost dying, but then we pull them back from the brink just enough to survive, but their quality of life is garbage. And then we just sent them home. Like we did a good job and everybody passed themselves on the back. That was, I know it is kind of, it is true, right? The, they leave home, they leave, they go home. They've just spent 10 days intubated, 27 days in the ICU. Then they, you know, a couple of five, six days on the floor. And then you just send them home. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is cool. Way to go. I met a guy who, um, or we operated on a guy who had a, uh, he, he blew a hole in his small intestine just by running into a pole. He was playing some football and ran into a pole and. It took him, I saw him later, six months later after he was discharged from the hospital and it took, and he was skinny still because he had yeah. lost the weight in the, in the hospital. And then he had, he was decompensated so much that he never, it's just so long to recover. And yeah. he was a normal, healthy guy like before and after you would have considered him after a really healthy guy, but it just so long to recover. And there's really no, there's not a good support system even still. You have to know how to navigate that aftercare system. Yeah. You feel like to get to get like the help you need, home physical yeah. therapy, home health. Like your insurance will pay for all this stuff, but I never ordered it. I'm a you know, I'm a PA. I discharge people from the hospital. You know, I didn't it wasn't my wheelhouse really. So I didn't really manage it. I feel like each of these patients needs a, a social worker just to manage their own case because it's our system is so fragmented. That yeah. there's, yeah, how do you keep track of all those things and, and work your way through it? And the insurance is the one that gets to call the shots at, at every turn. Sure. We have the people who stand to lose money if you actually get the care you need, deciding if you need the care. Yeah, that's, that's true. So when did you decide to go into NP school? And you went to Westminster, yeah? Yes. Um, when, I was, when I was in the ICU and seeing us just send all these people home, and not even just like, physically damaged but mentally traumatized from the experience uh we would just send them home and say good luck so I, I i was considering like doing crna and that was based on my time in the or just because i thought it was a lot of fun but um i decided the nurse that i wanted to help prevent these issues there so um that's why i decided to go to np school i also you know I am a very ADD person. And so I figured if I got road, that would afford me the chance to switch specialty. Time I felt like I needed to keep it fresh. Yeah. Describe nurse practitioner school. It's um, because the way we heard it in, okay, this is not a slam to NPs, but I always think this is funny that I was told this is NP school, right? So I'm a PA, a physician assistant. In Utah, we are very, very similar. We used to be a little less similar until. Uh, there was a bill passed two years ago that independentized uh, PAs, right? Allowed us to be independent yeah. and actually bill people. And we're one of the only states that does that. But in school, 
I was told that nurse practitioner school is nurses teaching nurses how to be doctors. That's literally I, how it was described <laughs> to me, right? Of course, this is a doctor who said it that way. Um, but, um, but what was it like for you? Uh, I, I really had a good experience at Westminster. Um, through the, the clinical rotations, uh, I was able to choose uh, pretty much all of my preceptors. Like the school would provide them, but I had so many connections to doctors that, who I knew personally. So I just would cast a line out for different specialties and say, can I come follow you for a few months? And so that was, uh, you know, it was beneficial for me. And a lot of my preceptors were MDs or PAs. Sure. And um, I, I guess there, there is all my instructors at the school were nurse practitioners as well. So that's literally true. It was nurses. <laughs> yeah, right. nurses teaching nurses how to be doctors. I mean, it, uh, it's it is it's funny because your model, the the nursing model, this like the lamp of lamp light of learning. I've what my best friend in the world is a ICU nurse at IMC. Great, great guy, very very smart guy. And uh, he, <laughs> there's some things about nursing that are really really great, and then there's these other things that are there are um their traditional nursing uh care model that is yeah. i don't know we don't talk about it a lot do they have that at westminster at the u it was like the lamplight of learning or something and in and in pa school we have the same thing we have these like things that were dumb but uh did that does that taint you do you, do you look back and think oh yeah that that part i would i could do without or I wanted a little more clinical diagnostic skills compared to the nursing skills. Or alternatively, because you had all the ICU experience and all the nursing experience, it was a lot easier for you to, to move towards like, oh, that's the, the pathophysiology of why that was the way we cared for the patient in the ICU. Like now I understand how to diagnose that. That was a lot more of my experience was just, I've seen these things done for years and i i knew already basically what we would do but school was then taking it up the ladder to why why are we doing these things and so i do feel like that that was a major benefit to have had so much clinical experience but um you know a little bit of the problem was everybody in my cohort had different backgrounds and so depending on what you had seen in your clinical practice so far certain subjects would be a breeze. And then like, for me, I hadn't done anything with children. So I struggled with pediatrics a little bit. Mm -hmm. and almost to an embarrassing level, because like, I have uh, between me and my wife, she had five kids, and I had three when we got married. So we got eight kids, but I'm still like looking at milestones, I can never like quite nail down like, what age was that? Why? Like, why yeah, are you like, looking? At yeah, that's when, when do you get hair there? Or you you got to be yeah. way too early. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a, a, a pretty good education overall. I do feel like we we took a lot of um, of the the diagnostic information and um, a lot of the other stuff that we learned from medical literature than just nursing. Do you feel like there were there were things in that program um, that you right off the bat? Okay, so you're into ketamine and alternative therapy. You do some cannabis stuff. Um, but did you feel like even through the program, you were already a little skeptical or, or did that come later? Skeptical of like, ketamine? No, skeptical of what we were taught. I don't know. The, I remember our pharmacology and our depression section, you know, there are five medication types that we could give as first line, right? SSRIs, Wellbutrin, it does. And, and really it came down to one of the things they told us in school was just ask your patient if they know somebody who's taken a medication, what that medication was and did it work? Because if you diagnose depression in somebody and they know a friend who took Zoloft and they had success, they're actually more likely to have success with Zoloft than a different medication just by the fact of knowing somebody who took it, yeah. which, which made my ears perk up like, what the f are you talking about? There's like you're like leaning into the placebo effect. Yeah. yeah. And you know some what? of these, yeah, that power of subjection is real. And so I started getting a little skeptical right from the beginning in certain aspects of 
medicine. Yeah. Uh, in, in our covering of depression and stuff, there wasn't really anything like that that they told us. It, it was actually broken down pretty thoroughly. And like these ones are energizing antidepressants. These ones are more calming. In these cases, you want to use this. In these cases, you want to do this. Um, but overall, we didn't hammer on that really all that much. Like we did a basic amount and, and like a, some testing, but mostly it was just providing us tons of resources to reference once we were in practice. Ah, nice. Um, so that was nice. But I, I, yeah, overall, like our, we didn't do any education on ketamine. That was something that I became personally interested in. Um, I got really interested in it because it has the, this instant anti-suicidal effect. And I had a lot of suicide in my family growing up. I lost my dad to suicide when I was eight years old, lost my aunt a few years later. And there were like a variety of other family members who had attempted or succeeded in, in uh, their suicide attempts. And this is something that could have changed my whole life. So mm. I just became really interested in it personally. And the more people I talked to about it, I was finding this. Like, you know, we all, we all went through the D.A.R.E. program as kids. Yeah. And thought, like, if you use any of these illegal drugs, they're all scary. And they're, you're going to trade like a moment of fun for your brain. You're literally destroy your brain just to have a fun time. So that was something I was like, yeah, I would never be interested in, in that. I value my intellect. But then we find out from the evidence, like, actually, these things are really good for your brain. Um, psychedelics, ketamine. They promote all this mental wellness, even in, in normal people without depression. So I became really interested once I saw that safety and efficacy data. And I found that the people I was talking to were consistently like, oh, but it makes you hallucinate. Like, I would never do that. I'm not that kind of person. And that was wild to me. I'm like, what, do you, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? Like, how, not What kind of person? like the the fact that it's a pleasant experience and good for you to me that's a win-win but to them there was something evil about a substance that makes you high regardless of its effects yeah but we have so talk about your first say a patient comes into you and they've i would I would imagine most, there's a lot of patients who come in to you now and they have never experienced anything like this in the past. They may have, like even with cannabis, like they may have smoked weed and, and gotten high and understand what that feeling is. But there are a lot of patients I, I bet that come in with nothing like that, especially in Utah, no right. experience of, of being quote unquote high. How do you explain ketamine to, to that person. I've written like a whole ketamine preparation guide that I sent out to them, tell them like a little bit about what to experience, and how to get the treatment. But when they, when they come in for their treatment, I tell them like, I, we could talk about this all day long and you will still have 0% of an idea of what the experience you're about to have is actually like, like the only way to know is to go through it. And that's, why, like, if you think about what language is, it's based on shared understandings. Like, you and I can can use words because we both understand what that means. But if you, if one of us has an experience that is completely outside of anything the other person could have possibly experienced, then there's no words for that. And so I tell them, like, it's going to be very bizarre. It's going to feel like a, an ineffable, strange journey that you're about to go on, but you know, 95% of people feel incredible during it, just regardless, it strips away uh, anxiety, it covers you in a blanket of serenity. And your body is totally safe and fine. We've got a good environment. I'm here for you. If you need you, I'll be checking on you regularly. You've got a call. I think you're going to do great. But it is strange. <laughs> but it, but just plain and simple, this is going to feel strange. Let it go right try to try to enjoy it or just see where it takes you how long are the like initial treatment how long is the effect so the the uh, iv infusion itself is over 40 minutes that i do here um usually about 10 to 15 minutes after that the strongest effects are wearing off but then there's uh residual effects for 
a few hours to the rest of the day, at least as far as like the physical effects. Um, the mindset changes. People will usually experience a benefit right away. That first uh, couple of days after, they suddenly are aware of, of joy again. Um, it's kind of brought awareness to things in their life they can change, and it's given them a different perspective of their problems. But for that first treatment, it usually only lasts a, a couple of days, maybe up to a week or two at most. And that's why we start doing the, the repeat treatments in the, like a series. Um, for most people, especially in uh, more treatment-resistant cases, they'll need a, a full series of six treatments done twice a week. And then after that, we usually are able to achieve a, a pretty robust and durable response. And I'll see most patients about once a month when their symptoms start to come back, they'll come in for a booster treatment. About once a month. How? What's the duration, like the lifespan of a typical patient? Are they coming in uh, for kind of a uh, a blast of treatment and therapy, and then you you do once a month for I don't know. Do people do this for years and years? Yeah, a lot of people. It's it's going to be. So, like basically, we know from depression, like your brain wants to build itself a certain way, and we can modify that with drugs. But as soon as you don't have the drugs, it's going to build itself back the only way out. And so um, usually it tends to be a long-term thing. But I have noticed, I've been doing this for a year, and I've noticed that I, my longer-term patients, I will start to see them less and less over time. And yeah. at first, worried that was just they couldn't afford it or were just dealing with it. But like when I do see them again, they're oh, I've just been doing great. Do you... Do you uh... I don't really know a lot of the research behind this, but is there is there a rebuilding of neuroconnections in the brain? Like with psilocybin, um, the just the the fungus, the that is affecting something in the brain where you're creating new neural connections, or you're dis disassociating some and then allowing others to I don't know to develop, or you're finding new connections because. In PTSD, right, you have this emotional part of your brain that's connected to the logical part and that builds these calluses where it's yeah. just firing over the same thing. So people get in the thought loop. Every time they go to a, a certain experience, they in uh, they experience that trauma again, where psilocybin is starting to show that these these things are changing those neural connections. Is that the same with ketamine? Yeah, it's a it's a lot of the same stuff. Um, with the the classical hallucinogens like psilocybin or LSD or ayahuasca, those are all serotonergic in nature. They work through um, this one is an MDA receptor, which is it works with glutamate, and that's like our brain's main excitatory neurotransmitter. And so you get a different feeling with the experience. Um, psilocybin and other of the classical hallucinogens can be very emotional they're very like mood augmenting and so whatever you're experiencing is just like an amplified version of that but um ketamine works through they call it a use dependent blockade so as soon as like those neurons are trying to fire the most active ones where those thick neural tracks of those ruminating negative thoughts are um those neurons will start to get plugged up with ketamine and so a lot of patients will during their experience try to be telling me what they're experiencing and then suddenly be like lost my thought and i'm like yeah, that's, we know that's what's supposed to happen, <laughs> right? But it, it interrupts them by blocking them with ketamine, the most used neurons. But at the same time, it it, um, it, it has a blockade effect on inhibitory neurons that keep the rest of our subconscious quiet, so we can think. And so, it's similar to psilocybin, we get widespread brain communication through these back channels, areas that don't normally communicate. Um, they've been able to to identify a, a cascade of effects that results in an increase in brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or uh, they call it BDNF. And that actually does increase dendritic branching and synaptogenesis. People will have new neural connections forming at an increased rate. Wow. From a legal, illegal standpoint, too, obviously you can't, I mean, your clinic can't do psilocybin treatments. Um, Not Right? Not what did you say? Not yet. I said not yet, but one day we. I mean, they did pass um, through the Utah legislature. It's totally 
done, signed by the governor, House Bill 167, is I think it's called the Psychotherapy Mental Illness Task Force. Something yes. And so, um, you know, where they put together this task force to make recommendations for currently illicit like psilocybin or MDMA and make recommendations on if and how and how much and who can use these for their therapeutic benefits. And I, I think that it's, it's good news that we've identified these things definitely are helpful. It's, it's to a point we can't really deny it anymore. So how do we use them? And so I'm hoping that their, their report is due by the end of this October. I'm hoping that we'll get some progress. And um, at that point, maybe we'll change the clinic to Swan Psychedelics and offer more things. Nice. Do, is there a difference between, you mentioned psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine, ayahuasca. Is ketamine closer to MDMA than psilocybin? Or is there, is there known differences? Well, um, so MDMA is a, itself in a, an interesting middle ground. People will argue whether it's uh, a psychedelic or an empathogenic or an entheogenic, which, I mean, it depends on how you're interpreting it. Like psychedelic just means mind manifesting. And so it's, it's these mind-expanding drugs, I think, could encompass all of those. But entheogens are like God-manifesting or... Uh, you know, there, it's a class of these drugs that just increase feelings of love and social connection. And um, MDMA technically is methylene dioxymethamphetamine. It's, it's a form of methamphetamine that's tweaked in a way that makes it both less harmful, but slightly psychedelic. And they're using that specifically in people with PTSD because it, it, it promotes self-love and forgiveness and um, connection to other people in a way that helps people stop feeling like they're they're worthless or these traumas were their fault or that it needs to control their lives. As far as the classical hallucinogens and ketamine, they're, they work through a much different mechanism. Mostly they're considered psychedelics together because of the experience ketamine creates is, you know, a very intense psychedelic type trip, just like the other ones. But whereas some of those I think will be better ultimately for depression because they, you know, bring that freshness and joy back to life. Um, I think ketamine with its ability to ease anxiety and feelings of fear or shame or guilt, I think that that's ultimately a better tool to face some of these traumatic memories. Although they are finding with psilocybin studies, the benefits uh, in some cases have lasted up to six months a year. So I think that that will be a better option in a lot of cases. Yeah, it, it will be really nice to that point to have multiple options, right? Yeah. Because right now we have, well, I mean, it's nice to have just the options we have, frankly, but it's it will certainly be better when there's more options. And they're already out there. MDMA, psilocybin, ketamine, cannabis, um, even ayahuasca, peyote, things are... They're out there. They've been used for centuries, but yeah. you know, we just we just don't have them in traditional medicine because we need the pharma pharmaceutical companies to sign off on these things. Unfortunately, the way our system works. One of the things I think will be really beneficial going to the future as we get more data on all these things, on their safety and their effects, will be um, to be able to combine them in ways that will amplify. Like, I mean, if you read some of these, uh, like, what do they call them? Trip, trip reports online. Like, people talk about mixing ketamine and MDMA, or like psilocybin and ketamine, or you know, whatever cannabis and and uh, these other substances. And the the synergistic effects could, I think, provide invaluable things that none of them could do alone. But we'll have to wait until we have more safety data. Uh, right. Other, yeah, how to there. how to blend them together and then boy, you're going to have to be monitored. Speaking uh, of monitoring and ketamine, so you've got a twice a week therapy, you can come downtown and you can, you know, get this therapy or go to Clinton and get this therapy. But what about going to retreats? Have you ever is there a uh, a place where ketamine therapy can be done in like a retreat setting where you go somewhere and I can because for me, 
it seems like Memorial Day weekend would be a perfect time to where yeah. to where I could show up Saturday morning. I could meet the provider. I could have a little lunch. I could get a little uh, intro to the system. Then I could have my first ketamine session. You know that day. Uh, see how that feels. Do another one Sunday. Cleanse on Monday. Come home or a sixth day. Yep. How does that work? Or do these things you can't do them like day after day? So I mean, ketamine. You there are plenty of studies that have shown, like have done consecutive day treatment, or even you can find some that were like a seventy-two hour continuous infusion done in the hospital. And that sounds crazy because it has a time dilation effect. It would feel like you were there for three infinities. <laughs> but, oh wow! So when you're in when you're in the what the K hole, right? Yeah. Is that what we call it? In the, I mean, I use ketamine in the emergency department for uh, like the kid has, uh, you know, the kids cut his tongue open and I've got to sew up his tongue. So we're going to use ketamine. We, uh, we use ketamine for that. What, I guess, off topic here, what's the dosage difference in what I'm using in the ER to put a, put a person down so that I can do a procedure versus what you're using in clinic? So the I think the the IM dosing for sedation um, was like six to thirteen milligrams per kilogram, something like that. I, at the clinic here, I give it from zero point five to two milligrams per kilogram, um, because that with that with the dosing of ketamine, there's actually like an increase in neural activity up to a certain point. And then that that ketamine blockade of the neurons shifts from like blocking certain channels while they're they're open but just blocked to totally shutting them down, and that's when we get that like total uh, anesthesia sedation. But um, usually they'll like for sedation they'll mix it with benzos or sure. whatever else to promote amnesia the experience and to give a little more sedation. Um, the funny thing about kids is they still have like a layer of magical thinking. So whereas adults will get the emergence delirium when they have like super heavy doses and that's why they stop using it as much for anesthesia. Yeah. Just fine with that. They're, they go on these magical journeys and they're just, they're cool with it. <laughs> yeah. We use it more in kids than we do in adults for that, yeah. for that exact reason. Right. Uh, the adults tend to not have those heavy doses can tend to have like little mini nightmares. And then you've yeah. got, then not only are you dealing with the injury that you have to fix, but you're dealing with a human being, a grown up human being who's like not having a good time at all. But these doses that you're giving are much, much lower. Yeah, they're, they're much lower. And, um, I, two milligrams per kilogram gives us a healthy buffer before we would reach any sort of sedation, um, when given over 40 minutes. And even with that dose, the experiences, quite intense. I don't get most patients and it, like anywhere near that dose. <laughs> I see. Do you build up a tolerance like you do with cannabis and THC? It's there it's not real clear at this point in the literature. What I've seen here at the clinic is that people will start to build up like a more of a tolerance to the negative effects before they do the positive effects similar to cannabis. And um I, I don't really think that there is that much tolerance, either that or it must build quickly and maybe wear off quickly. Mm. Uh, by the time we get done with the induction series, we'll get like a month out and do a dose of the same one. And people will report that it feels stronger. So that could be potentially a mild tolerance that was built. Or frankly, I kind of think it's just you had that gap between the series of these intense experiences. And then after yeah, you take a month, a little more intense than you remember. Yeah. And you're, um, you're also used to, I could see getting used to, not that you're building up a tolerance, just getting used to the effects and getting used to that journey, the mind, where the mind goes and being okay with like, let's, we can do that just a little more intensely because now I'm used to it. Whereas yeah. same thing with, with cannabis, right? You, you use your first time Maybe that causes some anxiety if you use too much, but then after you get used to it and you understand the sensation that that intensity level, then, then you seek that out in a lot of ways, right? That's yeah. your, that's your therapeutic dose. Yeah. I usually will describe it to my patients. 
dog getting used to riding in a car. Like at first, yeah. the time it might be this flying metal death box because they have no idea what's happening. Sure. But you can stick your head out the window on the freeway on your little space cruise. <laughs> right. And then now all of a sudden you really want to get in the car all the time. Yeah. yeah. Huh, that's a good way to put it because you're, you're right. You wouldn't understand a really good analogy. Yeah. What else? So, uh, so have you worked in a place where you're doing uh, daily sessions, like a retreat, retreat setting? I haven't. Um, I've done daily consecutive sessions for just a, a few patients, like if they came from out of state or something like that, where it's it's not practical for them to stay and do twice a week for three weeks in a row. Um, so in those cases, I've done like three treatments in a row. And like the first time they do great, second day, they're like, oh, I still feel a little overwhelmed for my first. And then by day three, they're like, got a little bit of a hangover and i just i don't know if i can do this hero's journey for three days in a row yeah it's really like some of the experiences especially if we're going up in dose can feel like like you've literally spent a lifetime in on this journey wow does it does ketamine theory uh therapy work in conjunction with behavioral therapy really well is that part of the like the decompression of all of these these things that are coming up for your patients. Yeah, the, the optimal optimal way to do it would be to have a therapist discuss with them that you're going to do ketamine therapy, go over some grounding techniques, some some uh, intention setting to decide what you want to get out of the therapy, and then when you come in, that can kind of act as your GPS for where your experience goes. But then once they start the like you said earlier, the best thing and really the only thing you can do is let go and float downstream. Just go with the experience, fully surrender to it. And I'll coach my patients like you might have emotional content or even like traumatic memories come up. But if you trust the ketamine, trust yourself, trust the experience here, lean into it, then you will be able to to get a different perspective and process these things in a way that might have been impossible for you. And so after they go through those experiences, I usually recommend try to get into your therapist again in the next couple of days while we have that increased period of synaptogenesis of that that new neural connections happening at an increased rate. And that way they can really capitalize on on the fact that they've been knocked out of their their rut, their uh, ruminative thoughts, as well as uh, this opportunity to develop new skills faster. Yeah, I I can just see how that would be really helpful for people who go through this experience and then want to talk about what it means and how it can affect them and what to do next. And um, uh, that change in perspective for PTSD, but we, we know that the see, being able to see the event from a different perspective essentially it's one of the key pieces to curing if you could cure PTSD. Yeah. Um, death. Do you have people that come in and do ketamine treatments who are dealing with cancer diagnoses and like facing their own death or the death of a loved one? That's something that is uh, a really useful aspect of ketamine therapy or other psychedelics. I personally have many of those patients. I actually people in my personal life dealing with cancer and I'm unable them to come in. But yeah. it's one of those things that, like, frankly, it, it makes you feel connected to the way that it, it makes it seem like you won't be gone if you die. You just will return to the ocean that is the universe we're all swimming in. Yeah. What what are those barriers? Like, how do we get past that? How do we get past people's resistance to therapy like this? I we've been, we've been trying, I've been trying with cannabis. It's easier. Yeah. I almost think it's easier with cannabis than it is with ketamine. It, it certainly is. And my, yeah. I'm a QMP as well as you know, I, I can far more readily convince people to try cannabis than ketamine. It still has a, a scary, aspect to, to 
journey because you tell people like it's life changing. Yeah. But it's for intense range. And um, especially the people I've known who are going through uh, chemotherapy and cancer and the dying process, um, they seem to be kind of stuck in that fear. And they're, they're, I guess, just afraid of what they'll experience. It, it seems like if you tell them this will make it not seem scary that you're dying, or at least yeah. will help change your perspective on it. I think that that just in the moment sounds extra terrifying. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how to really go about that, but I, it is something I think about. pretty. I mean, frequently. it seems like society is moving it forward slowly, but I talked to Connor Boyack, one of the, he's the president of the Libertas Institute was really an influential in getting the cannabis law passed. And he was influential in the psilocybin bill. Um, the task force that was yeah. uh, passed this session. And we talked about how, you know, generationally things will change and we'll probably get to a point where ketamine is much more normalized, where cannabis is much more normalized throughout the population. But on the other hand, the person who needs it tomorrow, right, that 62-year-old with major depression who needs a ketamine treatment, like to save their life, to your point about your family, we can't really yeah. afford to wait uh, to to let society catch up. We really have an obligation, I feel like, as providers, especially to educate people that there's something else out there in order to push yeah. that conversation when that 62-year-old needs it tomorrow or else they die on Friday, right? We, we need to figure out a way to get yeah. that conversation, like, speed it up. Yeah, and it's something that, like, I, I, ultimately, I feel like we should even be doing when patients come. But the the problem with giving it in that instance is that there's a horrible environment yeah. to do it. <laughs> You're in there, though everything's sterile, and people screaming up and down the hallway. Like that's a recipe for a, a bad experience. So, I I don't know what the ultimate infrastructure would look like, but I do feel like we need to take this seriously and consider how do we how do we right. implement this yeah even the ultimately for depression are kind of baffling to me we're still on this sort of in this position that ketamine's new it should only be used as a last resort and like why why do we reserve these these therapies that i i feel like could stand to improve almost anyone's quality of life and experience like this and we reserve it for people who are already at rock bottom and everybody else is just expected to deal with yeah. whatever they're dealing with. That's surprising to me too. Why is this last line therapy instead of like first or second line therapy? Why can't we change the mentality yeah. of prescribing two or three pills to, okay, maybe, you know, which do you want? Here are the three options we can do. You know, we can do a, a to do a prescription medication and you can try that for a month and that's totally okay. We can, we can give that a shot. Maybe you'll feel more comfortable with that in the beginning. We also have this um, treatment protocol with ketamine therapy. It, both are in conjunction with behavioral therapy. And, and you can kind of mm -hmm. decide that here's the evidence on both sides. Let the patient be part of the conversation. I mean, I know the answer is probably just, well, I have 15 minutes with the patient. The easiest thing to do instead of explain this whole thing to them is just to write a prescription and see them in three weeks. Just be done. Oh, yeah. besides that, your yeah. swan, they don't take insurance, right? Yeah. Sorry. Exactly. But but the pill totally <laughs> covered. No problem. Yeah. And then that gets us to kind of the frankly, the bullshit around S-ketamine of like, oh, it's this, we just filtered out the left-handed molecules from ketamine, called it a new medication. Now it's $800 a dose instead of like $3. And, and you still need two hours of monitoring, but we've got a patent on it so we can charge whatever yeah. we want. Yeah. What? Like, what is up it's with a that? case where we've, yeah, we've let the pharmaceutical company decide like, this is how we make money. So this is how it needs to be done rather than using these tools we have and know are effective it's considered off-label and came off patent in 1990 so 
nobody's interested in trying to push it for FDA approval because they can't make any money back. Do you use nasal ketamine at all? I don't hear clinic, but um, you can get racemic ketamine, which is just the 50-50 mixture for people that don't know. <laughs> um, you can get that just compounded in a nasal spray. Like I could easily prescribe that to a patient and there's no clear evidence whether S-ketamine or the right-handed molecule R-ketamine are any more effective. Like I'm sure they have minor differences in psychoactive effects and duration and, you know, whatever. But when we already know one form is, is very useful, just in its super cheap form, like it seems strange to me that we would allow our insurance companies to only cover the super expensive form that's not proven wow. to be any better. So how do patients get in touch with you and get associated with this type of therapy if they have major depression or if they want to explore it and just come talk to you? Um, like, what's the process? Yeah. Um, so what I usually do is just have patients, uh, they can, there's a self-scheduler on our website. Our website is swanbalancedhealth.com. Swan is S-W-A-H-N and then balanced with a D, health.com. Um, they can schedule an appointment right on there. Um, they can give us a call, 801-613-8842. And I'm happy to, to answer calls when I can, anytime. Um, they can even take that number. And we can do a phone consultation. With, there's, there's very few contraindications to ketamine therapy that would make it unsafe. Um, some of them are like unstable hypertension, um, more severe cases of uh, cardiac, kidney or liver disease, um, active psychosis, elevated pressure in the brain or eyes. Um, we proceed with caution in cases where there's substance abuse issues. But um, outside of that, like there's there's very few reasons that it's that it's contraindicated. So people can even schedule online themselves. Um, as soon as they do that, I will send out intake paperwork and um, then they'll they'll fill that out. They'll meet for a first appointment and go over everything, make sure that they are an appropriate candidate, and then we can get started right And how long does it usually take to get in? Uh, I mean, right now the clinic's still young. We I've been doing this for a year total, but we moved into this location October 1st, 2021. And so we've only been here yeah. seven so, months. So still building up um, a patient base. Still plenty of availability is essentially yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, I should have openings pretty much every day that we're open. It's it's pretty rare that the entire day is fully booked out. So people can get in right away. Does your, do you guys, and then you do this, you do cannabis. Um, and what else does the clinic do? Those so are the right two now, things, that's, right? That's all I do. Yeah, basically, when I started offering ketamine therapy, the the improvement in people's quality of life was phenomenal. Like I, I've never seen it promising in medicine, and so I wanted to build a place that went away from the sterile clinical feel. And so this clinic that we've opened here, I've got uh, different themes for each patient room. There, each of them has a, a different nature based theme. So. Um, like I've got a, a forest room with tapestries and um, like different plant stuff. There's a, an echo dot in every room to play music. There's two recliners so they can bring a guest. And um, I've got light projectors that uh, actually will reduce a lot of the dizziness. Some people can feel oh, cool. visual effects. So they can wear an eye mask if they want. But the, the projectors have done a really good job of changing it from like these kaleidoscopic visuals to a... Uh, more of just like a, a flow it it feels very incredible <laughs> but um i i wanted to to feel more like the spiritual experience that that i feel like it is and um like you said with these retreat settings i think ultimately that'll be a beautiful option and Ketamine was known as the buddy drug when it was first being used um, it made its debut in 1970 in the vietnam war and they called it the buddy drug because anybody could grab a syringe and uh, sedate your your buddy. It was just that safe. It, it preserves cardiovascular function. It preserves respiratory function and protective reflexes. So there's no life support needed. Even in here in the clinic, I honestly, I feel like checking vital signs at all is more of a, a medical formality than anything. Like there's rarely right. 
anybody with any any issues and usually it's it's if they've stopped taking their blood pressure medication or something that will even see a problem sure uh, i have to like postpone treatment until their blood pressure is under control but in general yeah if you were able to establish with a bunch of people at a retreat that they they had a, a good health history were good candidates their vitals were stable i don't even think you'd need to check them again for the rest of the weekend hmm. granted that's i guess sort of a it, it, talking to, talking from experience right you're uh you're comfortable with it. You know what, you know what to expect. Um, you know, you know what to look for, which is, which is awesome. I, this is awesome. Have we missed, we missed anything that you want to talk about? Um, in, in general, no, I think that that, that covers most of it. I mean, there's a lot of specifics and I spend all day talking about this. You know, it's, I'm very yeah. passionate. So people are welcome to, to ask me any personal questions about their their case or what to expect. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good a good overview. This is good. I want to hear. We I think we should get back together down the road and talk about how the clinic is going, and also talk about like the especially with psychedelics as we expand like the access to other psychedelics and we talk more about more psychedelics than just ketamine. Um, I mean, I'm interested because you're in this field, you're a subject matter expert. So I, I think it'll, this will be an interesting conversation to have again. I appreciate you coming on. Um, yeah. Yeah, Swan, swanbalancedhealth.com, right? You're in Clinton. In Clinton, yep. Clinton, Utah. Swanbalancedhealth.com. Thomas Swan. Thanks. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Tim. It was a pleasure. Yeah. All right, everybody. Stay safe out there.